1: To start planning your trip, visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, you know, one thing that I love about doing this podcast Mm -hmm. with you is the fact that it gives us an excuse to research things that just pique our interest at random. Mm -hmm. For instance... We are in charge. Yes, we are in charge (laughs) of this podcast, and um, we decided to talk about Imaginary Friends today, not because of the subversive gender politics of children's fantasy play, Uh, but really just because imaginary friends came up in some of our research dealing with only children. Right. Which we talked about recently. Because they're not lonely. They are not lonely. They're just creative. They're well adjusted. Mm Uh, and it got me thinking about imaginary friends and where they came from. Yeah. And I thought that maybe listeners would enjoy hearing about some scholarship on imaginary friends because similar to the only child, Uh, Well, similar to the only children's stereotypes as being, you know, lonely introverts, kids with imaginary friends also have some stereotypes as well right? as either being
0: geniuses Mm -hmm. or... Kind of dim. Yeah. Kind of... Kind of strange. Strange and misfitty. Mm -hmm. Um, We read this meta-study from 2006 by Espen Clausen and Richard Passman on the history, not only the history of uh, imaginary friends, but the history of the study of imaginary friends, because um, as we've talked about before, um, the the idea of childhood didn't really come about until more recently, and mm-hmm. so they they sort of looked at the past studies on on children and on imaginary friends and everything. And it's really changed over the centuries because not everybody really used to care so much about kids. They were like, whatever, they're just small people, right? The actual
3: concept of childhood as its own distinct life phase emerged after the 17th century, and then, um, but it wasn't even until around the 19th century that it was thought up, thought of as a crucial time of growth and development that they should actually uh, pay attention to, because really. Um, in that time, kids were just seen as small workers with little hands. Little
0: hands that can get into those machines and right. really fix things. Um Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, the 20th century, that's when we really start to see children being uh, viewed as these people, these small people who have special needs and desires and need to play and really have their imaginations set loose. And um, that's when we get these recorded instances of pretend companions or imaginary friends or whatever you call them different researchers have different names for them but um it's interesting because it seems like these imaginary friends didn't really emerge until kids did have set-aside playtime. And they were on their own, and they're playing with their toys by themselves, and all of a sudden they have imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. And and there are different views of them, of like whether it's just the kid's imagination, they're just playing, or whether it's an actual spirit mm-hmm. that's inhabiting the child, or there's some demon following them around. And um, one study of imaginary friends in India, northern India, I thought was very interesting. So in Northern India, there, there are very few recorded instances and no recognition of, uh, pretend companions. But this is a culture where children, um, have less playtime and little time to be left alone. And those are conditions that could reflect the era before childhood was really recognized as an important period for play and exploration.
3: Mm-hmm. And speaking of, um, of India, Clausen and Passman also note that, um, a lot of times pretend companions, when uh, those instances do come up, it's usually perceived as uh, someone like a spirit from a previous life. Yeah. coming to visit the child. It's kind of seen as a, uh, in a in a positive light. Whereas in the book by Peter and Sue Vanderhoek and Neil Anderson called Spiritual Protection for Your Children, uh, pretend companions or imaginary friends are described as uh, preternatural powers that can, quote, result in spiritual bondage.
0: Right. So it's sort of like uh, there's this, you know, certain, certain people are worried that the devil is inhabiting their children or that the devil is in their room. And I went on Amazon just to kind of check this book out mm-hmm. and a lot of people had, a lot of readers had written reviews of it. And one person said, you know, I was so, uh, nervous about my child because, you know, he kept saying that there were monsters in his room or under his bed. And I kept saying, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And then I read this book and I realized that Satan could be in the room. And so there, yeah, there's, there's been very, and, and that's, that's a view that's, you know, gone back for for a long time so it's interesting that so many different people have different views on imaginary friends
3: and I think it's just something uh, you know we might be uncomfortable with it because it's totally unfamiliar if you can't see uh, this you know entity that a child is supposedly having conversations with right, you some, might worry about your kid a little right some parents um, get a little squeamish but as we will as we will learn they don't really need to be yeah. Yeah. But let's back up um, and maybe trace the history of um, scholarship related to imaginary friends, because there are a lot of studies dealing with uh, child development and the psychology around imaginary friends.
0: Right. Uh, the first studies on the topic uh, did start start rolling. In the late 19th century, but unfortunately, study practices, research practices were not as uh, maybe carefully monitored as they are now. And so a lot of there, there were studies where the common traits of children's pretend companions were tabulated, but data were not gathered in any sort of standardized way. So we have stories of kids who had imaginary friends and, and you know, attributed personalities to objects, but but nothing, nothing that we can really get percentages from.
3: Right, and there's also, as a result, a a wide range of Analysis regarding imaginary friends. For instance, um, an early psychologist, Lewis Terman, thought that um, imaginary friends were common among gifted children. So it was a good thing. Yeah. But then uh, we have sociologist Charles Cooley, who was a turn-of-the-century academic, who thought that imaginary friends
0: were evidence of the need for socializing. Right. So, yeah, Cooley was saying, like, clearly humans need to socialize, even if it is with an imaginary entity. And how sad for you (laughs) that it's not a real person. Um, and and let's let's we can't leave out we can't talk about children and psychology without mentioning G Stanley Hall Granville, Granville Stanley Hall. <laughs> He's kind of a jerk. he hurt my feelings in that only child podcast for saying that I'm a misfit. Yeah, he was a
3: disease. He was the developmental psychologist responsible, really, for starting the whole lonely only child stereotype. And not surprisingly, he was not a big fan of imaginary friends.
0: No, he considered pretend companions in terms of the child's withdrawal of attention from outside stimuli to focus instead on the internal processes that maintain the personality of this pretend being. So the child was, you know, wasting time. They're not focusing on fun things like playing outside. They're, they've they turned all of their attention inward, and you, you probably should fix that. <laughs> uh,
3: and then there is the idea um, that pretend companions are a way of children negotiating between reality and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And this was put forth at the turn of the century um, uh, by Naomi Norsworthy and Theodore Theodora Whitley. Um, and they said, quote, it's usually a lonely child. There it is again. Mm-hmm. A lonely child that develops these play companions, and they'll become more real to him than his living playmates. There's a little uh, air of, like, stranger danger
1: in that quote. <laughs> Beware the imaginary friend.
0: Right. Yeah. And they they use these imaginary friends as an example of how children might not be able to differentiate, really, between reality and pretense the way adults can. Mm -hmm. You know, they use this as evidence of like, well, obviously, adults are mature. We've had life experience. We've learned a lot. Um, We know when something is fake and pretend or whether it's real. And they just assume that children. Couldn't, and they say that this whole practice uh, of developing a an imaginary friend results in losing all of the, quote, give and take that comes with living children. So they're worried about kids who have imaginary friends, especially if the imaginary companion is at the expense of having real, live, warm-blooded friends.
3: But a lot of those early theories are so... You know, contradictory, because on the one hand, they they see imaginary friends as uh, a sign that a child is, you know, needs more socialization with actual children. But having the imaginary friend will only impede them from ever being able to socialize with kids because they'll only be able to talk to uh, the, you know, Tiger, the imaginary (laughs) tiger standing next to them.
0: I know, you just can't get rid of that imaginary tiger. Snuffle up, I guess. God, it's been following me around for years. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Um, one idea that's persisted into modern research is from Jean Piaget, who regarded conversations, children's conversations with pretend companions as retaining vestiges of self-talk. So the kid is moving from, you know, just talking to him or herself in, in sort of a play way and like using nonsense words to developing a narrative and being able to converse and actually speaking socially mm-hmm. so uh, having conversations with other people so so he said that it's it's more of a development process yeah
3: and similar to, uh, that idea of imaginary friends as a way to negotiate between fantasy and reality, um, other child psychologists have thought that children would use pretend companions to cope with internal and external demands. Kind of how they, uh, early ways to negotiate with their own, uh, psychological development. A lot of times you'll, you'll see, um, imaginary companions termed as coping mechanisms for kids.
0: Mm hmm. Right. In the 1930s, um, research really starts to shift away from theory to actual empiricism. And Margaret Svensson's seminal 1934 study is one that gets talked about a lot uh, with child psychology and imaginary friends. Uh, she basically established an operational definition that we think of today when we talk about imaginary friends. And she looked at a group of 40 Chicago school children. And found that imaginary companions appeared at the median age of two years, 15 months, and were three times as often appearing to girls than boys. Which, okay, these things sound normal and non offensive. Mm -hmm. But then she said, in her, in the abstract that I read about her study, says that personality difficulties were present in most of the children, timidity being most common. you know, people... Wh- why you gotta be a hater? So basically, Margaret
3: Svenson is the G. Stanley Hall... Of the uh, the imaginary
0: friend, I don't know if she's so hostile.
3: She's yeah, she's not quite as I mean, you got a bone to pick with old G Stanley Hall.
0: I know. Uh, well, once you hurt my feelings, you know, yeah. it's hard to come back from that.
3: And Sensen is also responsible for establishing kind of the go-to definition of what an imaginary companion is. And we should note that she did not cat wouldn't categorize something like an anthropomorphized stuffed animal, um, like or an actual object that. Kids might endow with human personalities, um, but this is her this is her go to for imaginary friends. She says that they are an invisible character named and referred to in conversations with other people or played with directly for a period of time, at least several months, having an air of reality for the child, but no apparent objective basis. And um, and, and it's still kind of you know the benchmark.
0: Yeah. Well, I think uh, what's interesting also is that there's just this giant lull where nobody really cares about children's uh, imaginary friends anymore as far as research goes, because Svensson was publishing in the 30s, and then major interest in research in this topic didn't reemerge until the 80s. And some of the stuff I read was saying, you know, that maybe that has something to do with what researchers were actually interested in as far as how children's minds worked and how children fit into our... Society and mm-hmm. everything, um, and now uh, a lot of times imaginary friends
3: are seen as a vivid merging point between fantasy and reality. That it's not uh, a bad thing that these kids are have such vivid imaginations and can you know see these characters, uh, but that it's actually it's a good thing and that they're actually good. Benefits, good benefits, that's incredibly redundant. Uh, <laughs> there are benefits of having imaginary friends. Right. And
0: according to, depending on what study you read, I'll just say a lot of kids have imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some articles I read said it was 65%, yeah. some have said half, but you have to also take into account what are they counting as an imaginary friend? Are they counting, you know, your blankie or your stuffed tiger? that you put a personality on as a personified object, or are they just counting the imaginary guy that's over in the corner? Right. I was um, as I was reading
3: uh, all, all this stuff on imaginary friends. I was going into it thinking, well, I never had an imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. I didn't have uh, a Hobbes. Yeah. Um, But I did realize, though, that my puffalump named Ducky, mm-hmm. who was one of my best friends... I took her everywhere. Um, <laughs> uh, she she kind of fit all of the criteria as an imaginary companion. Yeah. We spent a lot of time together, <laughs> old ducky. What kind of personality did she have? She rocked. She was really easy going, liked to have a good time. <laughs> and uh, I also would give her uh, flying powder so that she could fly around. Was that Kool-Aid?
0: Um, Pixie it, sticks? It uh, Magical? It was Lipton iced tea. Actually, was not expecting that. I know. Were your parents mad that you were taking the iced tea? No, no. Oh. No, I think I probably snuck it.
3: <laughs> so I'd give Ducky a, a little sip of tea, and by Ducky, I do mean I would drink it myself because I loved tea. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we would go
0: on flying adventures. Oh, fun! Mm-hmm. No, my blankie did not take me on any flying adventures. I I I went into this into this thinking the same thing. I was like, I didn't have an imaginary friend. Actually. I remember being in my parents' room watching TV and thinking, like, wow, kids my age, I feel like it's really common, because I, I obviously talk like that when I was however uh, old. Uh, you know, kids today really seem to, to think these imaginary friends are pretty cool.
3: I'm imagining a little Caroline wearing <laughs> <Maria monocle. laughs> <laughs> a
0: monocle. Holding a bubble pipe. Yeah, um, I was like, you know, I'm kind of bored boredom, Mm -hmm, child alone, not you know, left alone watching TV, and I'm an only child, I'm, you know, whatever, seeking stimulation, I'm like, let's see what this is all about. So I remember hopping down off the bed and getting on the floor cross-legged and and looking into the blank space across from me and being like, okay, let's go. Come on, imagination. No one is here. and This is dumb. I'm going to watch Nickelodeon some more. (laughs) make me a friend brain but I did no? but I did have a blankie that I that, that had quite a nurturing and maternal um, personality so what does what does that kind of
3: fantasy play that we engaged in like so many other children mean Caroline?
0: Well, it just could it could be anything I mean it could really I mean <laughs> not to not to totally cop out here but it, it could just be. A child playing, mm-hmm. it could be a coping mechanism, like you said. Um, it's just it's not uncommon, really it's normal.
3: It is normal. And um, the stereotype that imaginary friends are linked to shyness or maladjustment has been pretty thoroughly debunked. The 1990, a little bit dated, uh, but still this book called The House of Make-Believe by Dorothy G. Singer from Yale and Jerome Singer, who's now a professor emeritus of psychology, um, said that kids who are choosing to create imaginary friends tend to be more sociable and have more friends than the only children, and it might possibly be because they have better communication skills. Certain research suggests
0: could be because they've spent all that time talking mm-hmm. in the thin air, and you- and they've had to come up with both sides of the conversation. So they're they're used to maybe thinking of possibly what the other person would be thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, because not all um imaginary friends are ducky or blanky. You know, there some of them kids actually argue with their imaginary friends. Yeah, there was I was reading
3: in uh, Marjorie Taylor's book Imaginary Companions and the Children Who Create Them, which is fascinating if only for the interviews with kids about their imaginary companions and the I mean, the, the elaborate descriptions these six- and seven-year-old children will offer to researchers is incredible. One of my favorites of which um, was uh, a girl who was really into dolphins. She loved dolphins. And so her parents gave her a stuffed dolphin. And um, she named the dolphin Dipper. <laughs> but if you ask her to describe Dipper, she would tell you that he was the size of a door and covered in sparkles and stripes, and lived on a star. Just as any Lisa Frank yes. character would. And lived in a trapper keeper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that was great. And there was a, there, there was also Cucumber Boy. Yeah, Cucumber Boy was offered up as an example in this breakdown of who has what type of imaginary friend. And according to research by Gabriel Triomphe and Elaine Reese, um, imaginary companion play, like we said, is more common in first-born children and in girls. Boys are more likely to impersonate a character, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But their breakdown, uh, 65% of kids they studied had one imaginary companion. 13% had two. And a very large chunk, 22%, had three or more imaginary friends. And I really like the breakdown, of what those friends were, uh, half of the companions, a full half, were identified as people, mm-hmm. some type of person hanging out, another kid or whatever. Fourteen percent were identified as animals. Twenty-five percent were identified as fantasy beings, such as Cucumber Boy, and there is no more detail. Yeah,
3: that was the only. There was no explanation. They were just like I'm
0: Cucumber Boy, just like Cucumber. And I'm like, well, of course, Cucumber Boy. I what? <laughs> I need something more than that. I need a chapter on Cucumber Boy. And then 11%, the identity was unclear of the imaginary friend.
3: Yeah, Marjorie Taylor uh, notes at one point uh, the, a case with a child who had an ongoing, and she says rather stormy, relationship <laughs> with a chest of drawers in his bedroom. I have never heard of anything like that. And I mean, that's, I don't know that would necessarily be categorized as an imaginary friend. Well, but definitely a personified object, Yeah, much like blankie or Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and she also says, uh, that in, I think it's 34% of kids with imaginary friends have said that they will get angry with their imaginary companions at times and even have arguments with them.
0: Right. Um, the New York university child study center tells parents not to worry. Um, if your kid is, has an imaginary friend, it's not nothing to worry about. And if your kid does not have an imaginary friend, don't worry. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're going to be stupid or not be able to pass their verbal SAT section. Um, but that you should just let it happen. You know, em- embrace that, that fantasy play. Right. So if they are arguing with their dresser, it's not, it's not necessarily that you're being too strict of a disciplinarian or they're watching mommy and daddy fight, and so they're fighting with the dresser. It's more just that your kid is developing. They're this little person, and they're getting used to the world, mm-hmm. and they're getting used to new ideas. And so it's just their way, like we said. Of a, it's a coping mechanism, so they're learning how to, what it, you know, what does discipline mean? What, how do I interact with other Things and yeah. furniture. Yeah,
3: it seems like for uh, for parents, at least what uh, Marjorie Taylor writes about her own experience with her daughter, who would have imaginary friends. She said that the hardest thing about it was sometimes if uh, if they kind of can't turn turn the imaginary friend off, especially if they. Uh, she was saying that she went to a dinner party or something, and her daughter saw a dog at the person's house, and immediately just became a dog for the night, and that was it. And if she would ask her, you know, like, are you done with your dinner? Like she just <laughs> she would not respond in,
0: in in people. I'd rather people speak. I'd rather just have a dog. <laughs> um well it could depend on your birth order. Yes. Um birth order and imaginary companion status, both both uniquely predicted children's narrative skill. Later in life, So it's interesting. I mean, I'm kind of switching gears here. It's interesting because, you know, we've talked about only children and firstborns, mm-hmm. how they're perfectionists. There's a lot of pressure on them, both internally and from their parents to really perform well. But these kids who are talking to imaginary friends have been practicing their narrative skills and, you know, figuring out what this imaginary other person is thinking. Um, so that's a good predictive of narrative skills. But so is birth order. And like I've said, firstborns tend to have more imaginary friends than other people, other kids. So that's that's a good sign for your SAT scores. And it's interesting because it's higher. It's actually both of these are higher for kids whose mothers knew about the, the imaginary friend. Because they're assuming that if the mother knows about the friend, this is in a study from New Zealand, um, that it means that there's been some interaction, mm-hmm. that the kid has told the mother about the imaginary friends, so there's been some conversation about it, whereas kids whose imaginary friends were kept hidden, maybe there wasn't any conversation about, what is this person thinking? Mm -hmm. Because if you have an imaginary thing that the parent doesn't know about, it has to be completely explained. So this kid has to come up with an entire narrative and personality on their own. Dippy, the dolphin who lives on a star. On a star.
3: It's incredible.
0: Um, Well,
3: in regard to status and imaginary friends. There was one notable gender difference, and this is coming out of the research from Gabriel Trionfi and Elaine Reese. And apparently... Girls tend to create imaginary friends of lower of a lower status. Hmm. A lot of times they'll be slower or they'll be kind of dumpy. Um, and and the girls will sometimes pick on on their lower status imaginary friend or or use them yeah. uh to kind of get away with things. It's like, oh sorry, I you know, I'm I'm late for breakfast because Trudy couldn't <laughs> get her shoes on fast enough. <laughs> uh whereas boys tend to create imaginary friends of equal status. Kind of, they they like to have someone to
0: pal around with more. Okay, but boys are less likely to create imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know what what does it all mean. What does it all? Mean? Why are we Why are we creating people to pick on? Are we practicing for high school? What's going on? Well, in 2005,
3: uh, Slate published an article kind of looking at all of these different studies on imaginary friends because it really has been analyzed. Uh, down, sideways, mm-hmm. and diagonal, and the the writer suggests that hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe they're just playing.
0: <laughs> what? Yeah. And that Slate article also mentions your friend Marjorie Taylor, mm-hmm. whose 2005 study with Stephanie Carlson found that kids are slightly more likely to have imaginary friends later. So whereas earlier we talked about a study, a Svensson study, that found imaginary friends came out around 2 years, 15 months, Mm -hmm. this one says that 31% of 6- and 7-year-olds say they have imaginary companions compared with 28% 28% of preschoolers. And it would make sense that, uh,
3: you know, six and seven year olds would be
0: most common among that
3: age group because that's really when, you know, they're starting to go to school, you're really mm-hmm. starting to form your, you, you have know, a lot ideas. to cope with. Yeah, there's a lot of new stuff coming your way and it probably would help to have a friend or a ducky. Or a blankie D- or Barbies. Mm-hmm.
0: I was all about Barbies and I, you know, I kind of have to be like, all right, look, I had a pretty good verbal score on my SAT. I played with Barbies. <laughs> All the time. And I was creating a narrative. I mean, I had the Porsche, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, I was creating all sorts of storylines with Ken. Mm -hmm. Take long, romantic drives down Malibu. They sure would. And in their their wind-up Jeep. Oh. Be it pink or red. So, the
3: original question that I had in my head when we were uh, going over the Only Children research, and I started thinking about Only Friends, or Imaginary Friends, was where do they come from? And the answer is, they just come from kids... Brains, and it's a right. normal and healthy part of child development that has been uh, scrutinized now for over a century, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, you know, if, if your child has an imaginary
0: friend, or if you had an imaginary friend, it's it's a good thing. It sounds like now, if you still have an imaginary friend, that could be that could be some sort of psychotic break with reality. That would be probably a pretty intense kind of coping mechanism, right? And if you if you do,
3: please tell us. We'd yeah. love like to hear about it. Yeah, I, I, I would love to hear from people who have the, just the total imaginary friend, like no, not a personified object, right? Um, and the real backstories. Let us know about your imaginary friends. I can't wait to hear about all of them Mm -hmm. and if you anyone out there had a cucumber
0: boy oh my god i want to know what it is is it the veggie tales thing maybe do you think or do you think this kid came up with cucumber boy he's like he saw his mom chopping a cucumber and he's like no
3: i mean the yeah just the the interviews with children about their imaginary friends are so are so incredible Mm -hmm. that it it could be just someone you know making up a cucumber boy
1: yeah yeah So let us know. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is the place to write. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With
2: access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
1: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit
2: snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode
1: is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s
2: hair bands.
1: In the meantime, we got a couple emails to read. Uh, this
3: is from Elizabeth in regard to our sex ed two-parter. And she writes, I had a cri- strict Christian upbringing, including a private Christian school. Sex ed did not exist for me at all. Uh, she says, one thing I would like to discuss are the chastity contracts. Simply put, I hate them. In my experience, Christianity definitely stamps any sexual-related activity before marriage as bad. We are told to flee all temptation and avoid anything that could potentially bring us bring this bad thing into our lives it could have been rather easy for me to sign a contract to remain chaste when I was 13 years old because while I very much liked boys I didn't know what chastity included or that sex at the right age and with the right person could actually be a great thing I guess I find these contracts to be so damaging because if anyone who has signed one does engage in sex the shame that comes with breaking that contract could psychologically sour their sex lives and sexual identity for a very long time that's an, that's an interesting take
0: on sex and the church. Okay, this is an email from Jenny, who, she says, I'm currently 18 and live in Canada. My last sex ed class was when I was 16, grade 11. I would say in the majority public schools in Canada were taught comprehensive sex education. I found our sex ed class pretty helpful because I've never been that comfortable discussing sex with my parents. Our classes provided a lot of information about contraceptives, which is great information to have because I am so much more aware of my options now. Unfortunately, I would say the one class in which we discussed abstinence wasn't particularly effective. No one really took the class seriously, and I personally found the woman who taught the class to be fear-mongering. I feel like abstinence classes need to be taught in a more positive way instead of simply pushing all the terrible things that can occur from sex. Good point, Jenny.
3: Excellent point. Uh, And again, if you want to send us an email, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. Or you can leave a comment over on Facebook or give us a shout on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Or you can write a comment in the blogs, Stuff Mom Never Told You, at howstuffworks.com.
2: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff
3: from the Future, Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing
2: possibilities of tomorrow. The House HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring,
1: like banking. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is
2: closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive